I think more people in the first hour remember that movie than in this hour something. Three Amigos. Well, we are in a difficult time in 2020. I think all of us would agree with that. In a, in a time of division in our country, can we not agree on that one thing? We're going through some tough times. Do you have an amen on that? Okay, that may be the last one I get from you today, but nevertheless, I appreciate it. Now, with the election looming, things are even more complicated and more divided than in normal cases. I mean, we've got COVID going on, and we have people divided over that. In fact, you can't really win, can you? On the one hand, you have people that are saying, you never wear a mask. It's something going on here that it has uh, no uh, benefit whatsoever. And then you've got other people that actually wear them in the car by themselves. Have you seen that? They're riding in the car by themselves wearing a mask. And if you are not passionate on one side or the other, then you're not with them. You sort of get canceled out a little bit. Same way with the race issue. Uh, same way with the election and different things where people are saying today. You can't have a dialogue. I, I saw one guy on one of the, the more leftist type of stations uh, give a plea for people just to sit down and talk to one another. And I appreciated that. Only about a month later, he said, I've had to get rid of a lot of my friends because they're so conservative, they're like on crack cocaine or something. And so you have these extremes. And so what happens is you get canceled out. And what that means is I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, if I do listen to you, I'm going to listen to respond, not to understand, but I'm not going to listen. And that's not new uh, to me, by the way. Uh, sometimes when I've, over the years, last 27 years, I've preached the gospel and some people have gotten up out of their seats and left. And that's really getting canceled out. Uh, and it, by the way, folks, that's, <clears throat> don't do that. That's rude to do. You know, don't do that. And some people say, well, you know, the election's coming up and I'm going to vote on, uh, on character. Well, I don't know how you can do that unless you know the candidates personally. Uh, you look at the past, depending on what news you watch, and you would find out that both of them in the past have been uh, less than Boy Scouts. And so you say, well, how can we possibly vote then over character? And somebody says, well, personality. Well, there's a difference in personality. No question about that. Do you at least agree on that? Amen? And so, uh, but I, I love what a lot of people, a lot of Christian writers have been writing, pastors have been writing, and I've been reading those things. But what I really agree with totally is what James Dobson has said, the leader of the Focus on the Family. And he said, basically, we are choosing our future. We're not just choosing a candidate this time, but because of the issues that are involved, we're choosing an entire future. And so there's a reason, by the way, I'm bringing all this around to the scripture. But, and so you, you vote your conscience. You vote, I'm not gonna tell you how to vote. Now I should have a few years ago when you had, I should have told you, you punched that ballot all the way through and get those chads off the back, you know? But I, I didn't know that was coming. And so I'm not gonna tell you how to vote, but here's, here are the options. And you say, well, there's other doctrine, there, there's other things as well you're deciding on, but a lot of it's fluff. A lot of it's just not gonna change. It's gonna remain the same. It's just commercials that are coming at us, uh, taking quotes out of context on both, both sides. And so what is it? Well, you decide if you're pro-life, you vote Republican. If you're pro-abortion, you notice how I worded that, you're Democrat, and you can tell right there, I'm coming from a point of being pro-life. 
and there's no question about it. I, I know people that have written and they've said, well, you know, it's not really in the Bible. Well, they're kidding themselves. It is right here. The Bible says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. You formed me in my mother's womb, said David. Jeremiah was told by God, he says, when you were in your mother's womb, I formed you and I called you as a prophet of God. And so we look at this and we wonder to ourselves, we wonder ourselves, well, how can anybody see anything differently? Well, it's just not important to them. It's not, as a Christian, it's just not your issue. You say, well, that's just your one issue. No, I don't have just one issue, but it is a main issue. How in the world can we expect God to bless a nation that kills its unborn and votes to do it? How can we expect that? You say, well, I think we've been blessed just fine. The Bible tells us the nation that is in debt is not blessed of God. In 1973, we were $850 billion in debt. A lot of that had to do with the wars that we had fought during the last century. $850 billion in debt. I was reading this morning, we have just topped $26 trillion in debt. We've gone up that much since 1973. But there are other issues, and I know that as this may not be your one issue, but most of us have that one issue. Maybe it's constitutional conservative court appointees. If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, you want activist uh, court appointees, you say it takes too long for Congress to pass any law. We've got to go through it in another way. But if you're a Republican, you're probably going to vote for a probable abrasive rhetoric from the president. That may be the understatement of the year for me. And you may be a big fan, but you cannot get past the point that the rhetoric has brought division. But you say, well, I want to vote for the nicer guy, but yet we find on the Democratic Party also there is division. In fact, there's been division. You can trace it all the way back. It kind of began really strong division back when Nixon was impeached, but the Republican Party kind of got over that because after all, it was justified. But then Robert Bork came along in 1988, and the way he was treated as he was trying to get on the Supreme Court began something new. 1992, the same thing happened to Clarence Thomas. The Republicans then tried to get revenge by impeaching President Clinton, and then the Democrats come back and calling George Bush a liar for eight years, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and now the, 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 the teachings of each party are so diametrically opposed that we have never in our history of our country have a decision to make that is so different in the direction our country goes. We are not deciding simply for a bunch of men and women. We are deciding where our country is going to be, not in the next four years, but in the next 40 years. It's that big of a deal. You say, well, I like lower taxes than the Republican. You like higher taxes. You're a Democrat. And maybe you feel like, you know, the balance, we need to balance the budget. We need higher taxes to do that. So you vote that way. No defunding of the police if you're Republican. If you're on the Democratic side, redistribution of police funds. On the Republican side, if you believe in no minimum wage increase, then you go that way. If you believe in a minimum wage increase, that's on the Democratic side. If you... You look at the Republican side, and you don't mind the fact that our president has ignored race issues until recently when he's come up with a five-step plan, platinum plan, that uh, has some good ideas. But before that, he should have spoken to what was going on and had some compassion for that. Now, you may hate me for saying that. 
Uh, you may cancel me out for saying that, but everybody makes mistakes and he should have spoken to it in a measured way. But on the Democratic side, you talk. They talk about race issues, but really when you look at it, they haven't done much since the 1970s. In fact, most people will realize if they were honest with one another that the Democratic Party has used the black people in our nation and their vote the way the Republican Party has used us, at least until recently, with the evangelical vote. We'll tell you what you want to hear, but we're not gonna do anything until recently. But here's the thing that makes it different from every other election we've ever had. And that's the last thing I mentioned. Capitalism on the Republican side, the way we do economics right now versus the probability, and I put that probability of socialism. We know that even the Democratic Party says that after this election, there's gonna be more Democratic socialists in Congress than there are now. It's growing. Everything's going to the left or into the right or to populist, one of, the two, one, of the, one of the two areas. And we see this coming. It's going to come. And socialism and communism is very little, there's very little difference. The difference is basically this, and I, I know there's a lot of different, I mean, a lot of uh, things I could get into this morning. I don't have time. But the basic difference is this. In socialism, you tax people enough to where everybody makes about the same thing. In communism, you pay everybody the same thing. But in both, part, both instances, the state takes over things, and they, the state, and socialism and communism will not compete with God. They will not compete with the church. They'll try to stamp that out as far as they can take it. And so that's what we're against, and that's what, or that's what we're up against. We're up against two totally different things. Now, you can vote any way you want. I would encourage you to vote. Somebody said, well, I just can't vote for any one of them. Well, I've had really at least one, at least one election where I wanted to not vote for either one. And then it's more of a leadership principle, really. But I've always taught in leadership, if you don't decide your destiny, someone else is going to decide it for you. If you don't decide your future, somebody else is going to decide your future for you. I don't want to somebody else to decide my future without me having some sort of input in it. And so if you vote for someone that has no chance of winning, you really kind of put it in somebody else's court. But vote. I would encourage you, if, now most of you have voted already, but if you haven't voted, I would encourage you to do just that. Now how does this really play into our passage today? This passage, this letter to the church at Pergamum is about a church that was doing right things, but it was a church that's not taking a stand for Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well you sort of didn't take a stand there. You were kind of going both ways. It's not about taking, this passage, it's not about taking political stands. It's about taking a stand for Jesus Christ and the word of God. And I want to ask you a question this morning. It's kind of on the side, but an important one. Are you as passionate about the things of God as you are your political issue? Are you using that as a substitute, thinking to yourself, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing the spiritual thing by being passionate for this particular thing, rather than being passionate for Jesus Christ himself and his word? As we look at this, Revelation chapter 2 tell, tells us about the church at Pergamum. Now, to open up this, remember, what we're talking about, the book of Revelation, is the end times. But in between 
chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, before we get to chapter four, we find some preliminary things going on. In fact, this book gives us its own outline in verse 19 of chapter one. Write therefore the things that you have seen. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter one. We get a picture, symbolically at least, of what Jesus Christ looks like in heaven. Then we have in verse 19, the second part of it. Those that are, those, those things that are, that's chapters two and three, the original recipients of the book of Revelation. These seven churches evaluated by Jesus Christ himself were to receive this book and everybody else would know what their church was about, but also they would receive the last things, which is the last point he says in this outline, and those that are to take place after this. Revelation 4 through 22, that's the end times. We want to look at this particular uh, passage of scripture and ask the question, where do we stand? As we look at this, we find three things. First of all, I want us to see in this chapter what we see in Christ. Verse 12, it always starts off that way. And to the angel of the church, verse 12, Pergamon write, now, this angel is, we said, the messenger of God. The pastor is written. It just means simply angelos or messenger. And so this was sent to the messenger of the church to read to the rest of the church. Pergamum was a very important city back there in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. In fact, it, for 250 years at this point, it had been the capital of Asia Minor. So it was the most important city there. Not only that, but it was a center of intellectualism. There was a library there of over 200,000 volumes. Now that rivaled the library in Alexandria, which was the largest one in the Roman Empire. Then, more importantly to us, at this point, this juncture, it was also a, a center of idolatry. And here in this, uh, in this city, it had four shrines to four different gods, including the god of Zeus. It was the first place that ever had emperor worship, Roman emperor worship. And so no wonder in verse 13 it says, I know where you dwell, says Jesus, where you live, where Satan's throne is. Wow. Man, wouldn't that be an enlightening thing to you? You knew you were living in a bad place. But wow, you know, Satan has a condo here. His throne is here. In fact, this word throne is, comes from the word Thanos. Does that ring a bell? Some of you Marvel comic fans? Thanos. It's where his Thanos is, his throne, his place of power is right here in this place with all the idolatry that's going on. He's parked right here in your church, or rather in your city where your church dwells. And so we look at this and we see then the portrait of Christ where it says the words of him, back in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, as we said before, what has happened here is that every single one of the churches have an aspect of where Jesus Christ is today. Look in chapter 1, verse 16, when it's describing what Jesus looks like now. In his right hand, he held seven stars. That's the pastors. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like a sun shining in full strength. A sharp, two-edged sword. Two-edged. Why two edges? Well, one... You know, you need, a, you need a knife to do good things, cut butter, cut meat. It, it's a useful tool. But also the other side cuts to the heart, you might say. It's a symbolism saying that God 
is sitting there evaluating our life, both the good and the bad. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's saying, I'm walking among the churches, and I'm evaluating the churches. Here's what he says. Second point, what Christ sees in us. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you're living right in the middle of Satan's territory. You hold fast. Wow, what a compliment. You're not bending. You're not deserting God. That's what it means. You're not deserting him. You're not leaving your relationship with God. You're not running cowardly somewhere else. You're standing first, firm, and you hold, he says, holding fast, what it says, to my name. The fact that you're proud to be called by his name. He says, not only that, but you don't deny the faith. Verse 13 again. He says, you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith. They were strong in doctrine. They, they believed the word of God. Just like many of you here today. You're in the midst of going through all kinds of stuff in your life. It seems like desertion or denial or leaving or compromising would be the way to go, but you don't. You're holding fast to his name and you're holding fast to the beliefs of the Bible. But he says, I've got a complaint. I've got something against you. In five out of the seven churches, he does have something to address in their life. Here's what it says. But I have a few things against you. You have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, you'd have to go back to the book of Numbers, back in the Old Testament, to find out a little background to this story. And you can read Numbers 22 through 25 at a later time. But there was a king of the Moabites who were a very idolatrous people and enemies of Israel by the name of Balak. And he went to a prophet, a Jewish prophet, by the name of Balaam. He says, I want you to curse the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam was willing to do that for a price. Balak paid him the price. Balaam prayed and cursed him and cursed him. Nothing would come. And he said to Balak, he says, I can't curse them, but I can tell you what you do. You, you encourage them to marry your daughters, the Moabites, and compromise and have immorality among your people as far as the temple worship, and you intermarry with the Moabites and let them be in idolatry, they'll lose, they'll lose their identity. They'll lose who they are, and they will be, bring a curse upon themselves, and that's what happened. Now, this church, unlike the church at Ephesus, was not necessarily participating. They were just allowing it in their church, and Jesus was warning them, if you allow it in your church, you're going to become part of it. Now, we look and we understand that our culture is constantly putting pressure on us. It's not just our culture. We, we act like America has the only culture in the world. There are thousands of cultures in the world. And we look at this, we understand that when one of the biggest fears of our life is to be ostracized from the group. You heard me tell the story when I uh, talk about parenting, about Ruth Baranda's uh, famous um, experiment. What she would do, she would take teenagers, middle schoolers, 
She'd bring them into a room, about eight or 10 of them at a time, and she would do a little experiment on them. One of them she would call the stooge. I wouldn't do that if I were your teachers, but they called the stooge. The rest of them knew what was going on. So she would write three, three lines on the board. And let, line one was A, line B was the longest line, and it wasn't even close. Line C was just real short. And so they looked at it, and the people would come into the room, and she says, uh, teacher would say, okay, I just, let's start off by asking this question. Which one's the longest line? Well, it was obviously it was B. Obviously, but everybody voted for A. Now, the stooge would look every time, she said, at the group, and she would, they would look at the line, and they would know. They would know line B was longer. It was obvious. But they would vote for line A every time, almost every time, unwilling to stand alone. It's frightening to think that we would be standing alone with all the stuff we have coming at us with the news, and a lot of it, a lot of it's just not, not, not true. And all the stuff on social media and people even planting things on that to laugh at us because they know it. They're, they're planning it in order to be false. So we'll spread it. And it's, it's just a mess. And with all this stuff going on, the last thing I want to do, I don't want to be ostracized from the group. I mean, everybody's doing it, right? Just like Chuck Swindoll tells a story of a fly coming by to a spider web and the spider saying, hey, come on in, little dinner, you know. And the fly says, no, I don't see any other flies there. It has to be dangerous. I don't trust that because there's no other flies there. About that time, he sees some paper on the floor with a bunch of flies on it. He says, look at all those flies dancing. It must be the place to go. Begins to fly down to that piece of paper and a bee comes along and says, don't go there. It's fly paper. It's got glue on it. It'll kill you. And the fly says, that's ridiculous. By the way, that's a new word to say in stupid. You know, I hate to say that word, kids here, but if you say something's ridiculous, means basically you're saying, wow, you know, I know you have a good argument, but I don't want to hear it because I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to change my mind. But the, the, uh, the fly says, oh, that's ridiculous. Everybody's having a good time. Look, all that many flies cannot be wrong. Flies down and got out of the web onto the glue and died. We, when we're, not, when we're not standing for the things of God and for Jesus Christ, there's an alternative there in our life. And I've noticed something, and, and many of you who have experienced this, you've got, anybody here, um, vote with me here, you can do so online as well. How many of you here ever had a muddy shoe? Anybody? You've gone through mud? What happens? Your shoe gets muddy, right? You, I've never seen the mud get shoey. You know, I've never seen that. We think, oh, you know, I can just dabble in the world. I can dabble and do what the culture's doing. And anything that they're doing, after all, I'm going to influence them, befriend them. I've never seen the world get more Christianized. But I have seen the church get more worldly. And so we look, and we look at the doctrine of Balaam, he says, I've got a warning to you. I've got a warning, and he says, I'm going to give you some counsel. What is the counsel? The counsel is much like what we've seen before. He says, you've been involved in the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is licentiousness, a license to sin, as we've said before. 
Verse 16, therefore repent. Now, repentance. How many times have we talked about that? I know there's a bad type of repentance where you're just sorry for getting caught and the pain, and so what happens then? You just go back to what you were doing before. This kind of repentance means I'm looking at my life. I'm seeing myself as God sees me. I'm coming to a crossroads in my life, and I'm changing my mind, and I'm going the other way. He says, I want you to repent. And if you do that, if you repent, he says certain things are going to happen, and if you don't repent, certain things are going to happen. Notice in verse 16, we see our last point and what we need to see in us. He says, if not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword in my mouth. He says, if you don't repent, certain things are going to happen to your life. And it's not going to be victorious. The Bible says in Matthew 13 that the word of God is actually going to be taken out of our heart. When that happens to you, you know you change. You know that when you, you, you get out into the mud, you get muddier and muddier and worse and worse. He says, I'm a, basically, I'm going to let you have the life that you want. And that is a life away from me. But he says this, if you don't, if you don't repent, that's what's going to happen. And you think to yourself, well, that'll never happen to me. Well, maybe it's happened now, and you just don't notice it. You know, one thing that Satan loves to do in our life is, is destroy ourselves. Let us, let us do it. Just let us go and let us just do it. And God says, come, come. But then we begin to look at life in a different way. And we are our own worst enemy. Paul Harvey, the uh, late radio commentator, tells a story on how Eskimo kills a wolf. And what the Eskimo will do is put blood, animal blood on a knife, long knife, and freeze it. And put more blood on it, freeze it again, more blood on it, freeze it again, until the knife is so coated with blood that you cannot feel the blade. And it's frozen, and he puts the butt of the knife into the ground, into the snow, and the blade sticks up. The wolf comes along, smelling the blood with a keen sense, and begins to lick the knife. He tastes the blood. He licks more and more and gets down actually to the blade and begins to cut his own tongue. And he dies by dr because he's been drinking his own blood. A picture of what can happen to us unless we repent. Now the Bible says if we do, great things are gonna happen. Great things, wonderful things. Look in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to notice something about that just for a moment. Look back with me in verse 7 of the church at Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. In verse 11, he says to the church at Smyrna, who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. This is the Holy Spirit talking. God's Spirit is saying, look, you're coming to a crossroads. Now we decide in our life what we're going to do every day. And I, I can't help you sometimes with the past except for the fact that you can be forgiven of everything you've done in the past. But how many of us here, how many of us here would say, I'd love to go back to some point in the past? Even as I mentioned that, you can think of one thing, at least one time, you wish you could go to the past, in the past, and change it all. You know, I love those movies about time travelers. And every time I think about, wow, I'd go back and change this and correct that, but 
there are no time travelers that I know of. I think if we had any, they'd be here. You know, if you are a time traveler, please see me after the service. <laughs> Otherwise, we know that we can't go back in the past and change anything. But here's the thing. You can make a decision today that can change what's going to happen to you in the future. Just like we are choosing what's going to happen to our country in the years to come on Tuesday, we also decide our own future as well. And every time I get up in the morning, I decide whether I'm going to walk with Jesus or not. I'm going to decide whether I'm going to get the blessing of God in my life or not. But every now and then, something comes up in our life, a crossroad, where we make a major decision on what we're going to do with the rest of our life. And you can make a decision today that you will not have to look back at today and have regrets. You can't change the past, but you can sure change your future even today. He says this, I'm gonna give you hidden manna. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, the manna was the bread that fell from heaven for the Israelites to feed the Israelites. He says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm not only going to provide sustenance for you, but I'm going to provide security for you. I'm going to provide peace in the midst of that storm, peace in the midst of a, of a pandemic, peace in the midst of a time where you're going through an election cycle and deciding where your, church, where your whole country is going to go. I'm going to provide something for you. In fact, this hidden manna, the reason it says hidden is that in the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelled among the people of Israel, they had a place there where they hid some of this manna to remind them of the blessings and provision of God. He says, God, you repent and God will come through for you. He says not only that, not only hidden manna, but notice in our text, again in verse 17, a white stone. And a new name written on that stone. A new name will come in heaven. But the white stone is something that they, in the Old Testament, they would separate the stone. Write a name on one end, one side, a name on another side. You would, you would exchange white stones, parts of that white stones. And that was a friendship that you would have forever. A relationship that you would have in your own heart forever. See, it's a clear choice, isn't it? It's a clear choice. As a choice in our country's going to make, and it's either one side or the other, and there's nothing in the middle. But ah, uh, you have to choose a person, don't you? And to some, that's, that's difficult. With your personal future, there's a way that you can go to follow Christ and make all the difference in your life. But you, in order to do that, you choose a person. And even though that, that person is obvious, that person of Jesus Christ is loving, there's nevertheless a choice to be made because you do, you and I surrender certain things when we surrender to Christ. In fact, as I compared our candidates and I compared really our, our parties that we have in our country, let me, let me compare the decision that I'm asking you to make today. If you follow yourself, you make your own choices. To a certain extent, extent, you can't choose the color of your eyes, color of your hair, you know, sometimes even your job and where you live, but certain choices that you can make, and I'm talking about mainly to do things in a carnal way. You can choose that, but you cannot choose the consequences of those choices. choices. On the other hand, if you follow Christ, you have God's wisdom to make the right choices. 
And God controls the results. He's in control. Ultimately, God is in control. Then, if you follow yourself, you have guilt. And there's built-in guilt to every single one of us. There just is. I remember back when Promise Keepers were having their big conferences and back before any of this was, this is all kind of new to, to most of you here, but people actually uh, repenting of their, the sins of their ancestors and racism. And they asked us to do that. And I went forward. And I found out something very easy that day is that it was so, so much easier to repent of my ancestors' sins than it was my own. You see, there's a built-in guilt there, sometimes even with Christians, but certainly with a lost community that says something's wrong with my life, but I don't want to come to grips with it. So I'll blame it on someone else or I'll repent for someone, somebody else, but it makes me feel so much better, but it doesn't solve the problem. With Jesus, there's forgiveness, real forgiveness. As he died on the cross for your sins, his blood was shed on the cross for you, and forgiveness is yours when you call on his name. If you follow yourself, you'll never fulfill your original design for your life. God has a plan for your life. Just like I quoted from Jeremiah just a few moments ago, God has a plan for your life. You'll never know what that is. Never fulfill it. But if you follow Christ, you fulfill your destiny. If you follow yourself, lastly, there's an eternal separation from Christ. If you follow Christ, there's an eternal relationship with Christ in heaven forever. You know, I can't give you a time machine. There's no way that we can maybe get back all the things that, as the Bible says, the locusts have stolen. The insects of this world, the pests of problems have stolen away from us. But there is a way that we can avoid the losses in the future. There's a way that we can avoid the regrets in the future, but you've got to decide what kind of person you really want to be. When I was a student in college, um, I went to the University of Georgia for a few years and lived by myself. And so obviously, um, I had freedom. It was at that point I really gave my heart and life really seriously to God, started living for him. And so when I say this, I'm not saying that I was involved in a lot of bad stuff, but I'm just saying I had freedom. If I wanted to get up in the, at 12 o'clock at night and go play tennis with a couple of guys, which I've done, did before, or I want to go down to Dunkin' Donuts at 2 o'clock in the morning, I just did it. No problem. Got in my car and just left. A little restless, couldn't sleep, just did it. When I went to Cold Falls College, transferred there to study for the ministry, they had an 11 o'clock curfew. I'm an adult, crying out loud. And I know I kind of accepted that when I went. But, you know, there were times when I couldn't sleep. I'd get out and I'd walk around, or really jog around campus. There were times when I came in a little bit past 11 o'clock. Ah, it's just 5, 10, 15 minutes. You know, here's the thing. Mr. Eby, the dean of men, and I became close. <laughs> and uh, I remember sitting in his office, ranting in a nice way, respectful way, about how the rules were not fair, and I'm an adult, and this security officer that, that took my name was just kind of like a Barney Fife, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, he was just, you know, antsy and just wanted to do something. And he just looked at me, and I know we'll forget the question he asked me because it, it really kind of changed my outlook. 
on this. And he said, well, Dwayne, you just got to decide to yourself. Ask yourself the question, what kind of person do you want to be? Am I intellectual, quick, wit? I responded, huh? <laughs> really took me by surprise. And I realized in a moment that I still had rebellion in my heart. And I was at a crossroads. If God, I wanted God to, me to become what God wanted me to become, I needed to make a decision, and I did. See, we come every day to making a decision where, what kind of person do I want to be? But there's certain times, like maybe today, where you're wrestling with something in your life and you've got to decide, what is the future going to be? What is my future going to look like with God or without God? What is it going to look like today? Some of you here need to wrestle and grapple with that one thing. Others here are thinking to yourself, hey, I'm not a believer. Or you're thinking to yourself, my wife thinks I am. My husband thinks I'm a Christian. People at work think I'm a Christian. I mean, after all, I go to church, right? But I know, I know, I'm just playing at it. What about you today? What about you? Are you coming to that crossroads right now? I pray that you are in some way. And you're deciding for Jesus Christ, coming to the Father and saying, God, I, need, I see this now, I see it, and I want to decide to be with you and your man, your woman, your young person now and in the future. That's the life I want. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I would ask you this morning, as a Christian believer, I'm gonna challenge you to make things right wherever you are, whatever, whatever is. You say, well, that's, that's just a little thing that you were going through it to Coal Falls. It's kind of silly. No, it wasn't silly for me. And it's, whatever's going on in your life is not silly to you. God cares about you. He cares about every big thing and every little thing. What is it in your life that you need to make right? It will determine your future. And then what about you that have never received Christ? The decision you make today is going to shape the rest of your life. And so I'm going to ask you right now to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Whether you're here, whether you're watching by video in some way, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. And you, as you pray it and follow after me, mean it in your heart that Jesus Christ would come into your life and come into your heart. Pray with me now. God, thank you so much for all that you've given me. Thank you for an opportunity to choose you. And I choose you today. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for me, for being resurrected on the third day to give me life. And I accept that life. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. And God, there are many. And I ask you to come into my heart. Make me the person that you want me to be. Help me to follow you. Make my future what you want it to be. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.